today on Ag News Daily. So with our systems at Commercial Launch, a new indoor grower should be able to have 20 crop cycles a year if they're growing leaf eaters. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today is August 2nd. My name is Hannah Pagel, a co-host of the Ag News Daily Podcast. I am joined today by Mike Pearson. Mike, how are you doing? Fantastic, Hannah Pagel. That's great to hear. And we are also joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how's it going for you? Not bad, Hannah. Not bad at all. Well, that's great to hear. It's a beautiful day. So let's just get right into the news today. What is on the headlines for you guys today? You know, that's an interesting question. I know in rural America, we've got a lot of folks, and Hannah, you and I have talked about this before, who are pro-hunting. Right. We want to keep uh, keep animals safe. We can hunt them and so forth. The Trump administration is currently being sued. A series of environmental groups, the Humane Society of the U.S., Center for Biological Diversity and the National Resources Defense Council have all filed a lawsuit against the new International Wildlife Conservation Council saying that this panel that the administration has put together is comprised primarily of pro-hunting industry representatives and recreational hunters. And they say that's not fair. They need to have more, I I don't know, folks from, I'm guessing, their boards uh, involved. And uh, I just think that's interesting. I'm hoping that maybe if all these folks are pro-hunting, maybe we can finally make some headway in ridding the world of the white-tailed deer. (laughs) Ridding the world? Why people eat that, don't they? Yeah, but they might as well just eat beef or pork. Well, yeah, but deer helps the environment. They're part of no, the natural... No, they um, do not. They are an invasive <laughs> species. They were brought over here by the Spaniards. They are a disgusting blight upon the North American continent. Technically, they, they are a part of the food they chain. They carry ticks. They are a horrible, horrible creature. That's well, your opinion. It's a fact. Um, I don't think so. Well, one thing's for sure is you spent some time doing some investigating on how to rid this species. So we see where your time has been. (laughs) Yeah. Nice, nice. So that's my news. I'm I'm hopeful there. Delaney, what's jumping out at you? Well, I have some important news to our listeners, Mike. Um, We have finally confirmation of who the nine senators will be heading to the uh, Farm Bill Conference. We are going to mm-hmm. be seeing six of the nine members were already people that we expected. So the three new ones are going to be Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senators, I was Junior Senator Joni Ernst, and this was kind of the, the biggest surprise to a lot of folks, North Dakota's Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp. Mm. Well, makes sense. I mean, those are, yeah. those are all apparently, apparently, though, Heitkamp um, took the seat that, that Amy Klobuchar was originally supposed to be taking. Okay. Oh. And we did not see Senator Grassley get on there. So he was one of the ones that really wanted to, you know, tighten up uh, commodity and subsidy payments. So we will see what that group of uh, folks holds together. And Delaney, do you know how they select the members to be on the panel or the committee? I think it was a vote. Okay, so like a nomination and then like you vote. Yeah, I, I think so. Okay, well, I also have some news out of D.C. today. So the Senate passed a one-year ELD extension for livestock oh. haulers. 
So the amendment proposed by Senator uh, Deb Fisher from Nebraska asked to delay the implementation of the ELD mandate until September 30th of 2019. So there is currently an an extension in place for ELD implementation, and it's going to expire at the end of September 30th, 2018, but this will, of course, you know, draw out the process for another year, but that's good news because they needed this extension mainly so they could have just one more year to get the Transporting Livestock Across America Safely Act securely passed through Congress. So we have another year to get that in and get that in place. Well, that is good news. I know a lot of livestock haulers were really hoping to get something permanent, but I think in the political world, uh, a year is perhaps as best as we can hope for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of trucks, I've got news here from Cummins. Cummins Incorporated, the engine manufacturer, has said that they are going to recall half a million 210 or yeah 2010 to 2015 medium and heavy duty trucks the EPA made this announcement earlier today they said that one of the components in the exhaust system the SCR or selective catalytic converter doesn't last as long as it was supposed to so they're recalling half a million of these vehicles in order to replace that piece and uh, this is on top of 232,000 Dodge Ram uh, 25 and 3500 series pickup trucks. So folks, if you're driving a Cummins, hop on their website and see if your uh, if your vehicle is due for this recall. Well, speaking of the EPA and um, ethanol and oil fuel related news, President Trump and the administration proposed some I guess you could call them I guess rollbacks, if that's what you want to call them. They're, they've got a new proposal out for high octane fuels. So Thursday, they are, they decided to uh, make this announcement and they're requesting comments from folks. So if you have any opinions, feel free to get those in there. But basically under the Obama administration, new cars sold in the United States were supposed to have an average of 54 miles per gallon by 2025. They're trying to reduce the high octane fuel levels. Um, and so the only way to do that was to be, was to boost ethanol or cars that use ethanol. Now the Trump proposal is going to potentially freeze those standards for cars and trucks built after the year 2020 to an average of only 37 miles per gallon by 2026. So in addition to that, uh, this new proposal would also revoke a waiver given to uh, the state of California to set its own standards. Uh, California would have to adhere to whatever the EPA sets as those standards. And I, I guess I, I, I think it's the ethanol groups are not super excited about it and are going to send in their own version of the proposal um, because I think this will limit the expansion for the ethanol industry. Yeah, my take on it is that in order to get to that 54 miles per gallon, the engines were going to have to get smaller and burn right. cooler at a higher compression rate when that's where ethanol really, really shines. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully we'll have Ted Seifert on the show on Monday, and he is an E85 super Supporter. fan. Oh, yeah. So we'll get his take on it. But I did see a, a memo out from California's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger today He is planning on taking California to court, and they are, or he's going to help, assist in blocking the revocation of the waiver that Trump has proposed today. Okay. I don't know how that all works. Nah, I don't either. 
Arnold okay. is still the governor, correct? Or no, it's mm-hmm. Gary uh, Jerry Brown is the governor. Okay, but he was. So Arnold, I think, is just involved, maybe in politics still. Gotcha. Do you have an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression, Mike? Ah, <laughs> uh, not off the top of my head. Get I to the chopper now. Uh, yeah, oh, get to the chopper. I haven't heard <laughs> Arnold in a while. <laughs> I, I grew up with a, an older brother who was a huge Arnold Schwarzenegger fan, so he quotes him all the time, and that is one of his top quotes. <laughs> That's outstanding. Oh, gosh. Gosh. I've got a piece of news here. The cost of tariffs appears to be going higher. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is a business group that has been opposed to tariffs since the start, has said that if the Trump administration does want to help all of the industries that have been affected by the tariffs, they think there should be another $27 billion spent on industry bailouts on top of the $12 billion that is going to farmers. And uh, they say all these folks are feeling it, and everybody from chemical manufacturers, prepared food manufacturers, fishers and crabbers, which I thought was interesting, Soap manufacturers have faced a $725 million loss, shipbuilders, furniture makers, and so on. And uh, it doesn't seem to have any traction. Robert Lighthizer said that they're not going to push for any more bailout-type programs. But uh, basically the chamber is saying, hey, you know, these things are having real costs and these industries are suffering because of the trade war. I just think it's crazy. I just keep going back to like how could they possibly regulate this how are they going to set any standards to allocate or divvy out the money that they've allotted now to the bailout program i so confused hmm. well on september 1st we'll have a lot more details yeah, out to work and we'll check back in with uh, bill nordy that's for sure let's well, see Hannah, have... you have I have one more story for you guys. Uh, Bear has completed the, or excuse me, not Bear, BASF has completed the acquisition of Bear assets. So it was a $9 billion purchase, which included Bear's research and development platforms for hybrid wheat and canola, uh, a number of seed treatment products, and its global vegetable seed business, along with it's glyphosate-based herbicides in Europe, and then it also has the complete digital farming platform, uh, Exvario, I believe that's how you say it. But, yeah, they completed the acquisition, so BASF has some more tools that it can use from Bayer. Hmm. Yep, I saw that go through today. The only other piece of news I had for us today, just a little quick nugget here an update on NAFTA. The Mexican economy minister is going to be in Washington today to continue uh, NAFTA negotiations and high-level talks with our trade representative, Robert Lighthizer. They're really, really hoping, again, reiterating that they want to have it renegotiated by the end of this month. All right. Well, fingers crossed on that issue. And with that, I think we should jump into the markets. Let's do it. All right, folks, and our markets are brought to us by our good friends at the Zaner Group. Get in touch, put a marketing plan together, and stick to it with help from professionals. Give the Zaner Group a call. 312-277-0050 is the number, or visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E. 
ER.com. We've got some green on the screen today, broadly speaking. In the corn market, the September contract was up one and three quarter cents at 366 and three quarters. December also up one and three quarters to close at 381 and a quarter. Soybeans, that was a little bit of a pullback. The August contract down four and a quarter at 882 and a half. November dropped under the nine dollar mark, down four and a quarter cents to close at 897 and a half. In the wheat pit, we had some excitement today as there was a Ukrainian Facebook post saying they were going to limit wheat exports, cause the futures market to rally 30 cents on Chicago wheat, and then it quickly, within the hour, pretty much gave it all back and closed. September contract up two and a quarter cents at 560 and a half. The December closed higher by four cents at 582 and three quarters. Looking over on the livestock side, we've got some trade happening here. In live cattle, the August contract down two and a half cents at 108.60. The October down 32 and a half to close at 109.95. In feeder cattle, the August contract down 62 and a half cents at 151.20. The September down 60 cents to close at 151.35. And in lean hogs, weakness continues. The August contract down a dollar twenty-seven fifty at fifty-eight ninety-seven and a half. The October down a dollar twelve and a half to close at forty-nine sixty-five. And of course, in dairy, in that class three milk contract, the August down four cents at fourteen eighty-two, with September also down four to close at fifteen sixty-one. We're going to have a great conversation with Clayton Mooney from a vertical farming firm called Nebulum. But before we do that, let's get a word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seed. Join now by agronomy specialist Phil Long from Latham High Tech Seeds. Phil, you get out in the fields a lot working with producers. What have you been seeing this year as far as the corn crop goes? Yeah, so it seems like we've been seeing a lot of nitrogen deficiencies showing up. You know, typically later in the season you see that nitrogen firing coming up from the bottom of the plant and and it's kind of showing up a little bit early this year. Uh, that yellowing and an inverted V shape coming up, and, and I've seen some up to the ear leaf, which isn't a good thing. But uh, you know, we've had a lot of heavy rains and, and flooding and ponding early on, and, uh, and and even some poor planting conditions that probably contributed uh, to what we're seeing right now. But uh, just unfortunate that we're seeing quite this early in, in the corn crop. Phil, if folks are experiencing nitrogen deficiency, what can they be doing in their fields? So unfortunately, you know, when when it's wagging, the, you know, kind of wagging the white flag, it's it's a little too late. Uh, you know, if it's showing right now, it's probably causing damage. But um, you know, there are things you can look for. You know, you're probably going to end up seeing some some tip back, uh, maybe a little more than normal on the ears, and maybe even some poor kernel set to have it, you know, around this pollination time period. And the other thing I'd warn guys against is pay attention at the end of the season for for weaker stalks. You know, because that that corn plant is going to try its hardest to to fill that that ear with nitrogen and protein and and it will cannibalize the stock if it needs to so just something to watch out for when they get closer to harvest absolutely and you can always reach out to any one of the specialists or agronomists there at latham high tech seeds by calling 1-800-GO-LATHAM well today ladies and gentlemen for today's interview we are talking with clayton mooney co-founder and ceo of nebulum whose goal is to help grow food sustainably and locally through vertical farming. So first off, Clayton, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. So why don't we first kick it off with you explaining who Nebulum is and what your team is doing. Sounds great. So for Nebulum, we really focus on one major problem in the vertical farming space, 
And that's with the operating costs uh, being so high because of labor. So when you think of a vertical farm, you have your growing systems, which usually offer a horizontal growing plane. And then you have, let's say, your lettuce and then your lights. And then systems, lettuce, lights, back one on top of another, all the way to the ceiling. And then you have your laborers having to go up and down the aisle and oftentimes jumping on scissor lifts to tend to these thousands of plant sites for transplanting and harvesting. So at the end of the day, that's just a lot of wasted time having to go back and forth. So what we've created is a vertical growing plane, a mobile wall that brings all of your plants to one central transplanting and harvesting point. So with that, we can eliminate aisle space. We no longer need people going up and down aisles, jumping on scissor lifts. And because of eliminating aisle space, we can then maximize production space. And we see ourselves as a comprehensive provider of the hardware and software to new vertical farmers entering the market, uh, oftentimes looking to grow leafy greens, microgreens, herbs, pharmaceuticals, and nutraceuticals. Fascinating. Clayton, and now when you look at the – well, I guess I want to take a step back. Vertical farming, we've been talking about it realistically for about 10 years. It seems like it's been on the public's radar. How much has the industry changed from inception until today with Nebulum and what you guys are bringing to the table? Yeah, the you know the transition you see a lot of people making with new technologies in indoor farming or vertical farming – uh, it's finally outside of just the cannabis realm. Uh, we would say cannabis producers are kind of at the, the leading edge of innovating in indoor uh-huh. growing. Uh, but the the industry as a whole, uh, there are a lot of people jumping in. And when these new farmers jump in, they oftentimes don't have practical, uh, more traditional agricultural experience. So they're looking and searching for plug-and-play systems or automated growing technologies. They can really just, you know, plug it in, push a button, and let your lettuce grow. And when it's harvest, receive, let's say, a text or a push notification. (laughs) And looking at the industry as a whole and knowing more and more people are jumping in, uh, that's where we really see over the next five years that the industry needs to automate whatever can be automated. And that's where we see benefit in having both the hardware and the software. So can anyone run this system, or who are you trying to target for a customer? Yeah, so we're hoping to, when we commercially launch in about 18 months, to offer a full plug-and-play system that has the software managing everything. So you can think of our software as your personal horticulturalist, and then we also want to provide the seeds and nutrients. But because of the scale we need to get to, we're really focused on new indoor growers, commercially producing at 10,000 square feet or more. So we're really not focused on hobbyist markets or anything below 10,000 square feet. Gotcha. And that was going to be my next question is what size of a unit do you need to be to be profitable to capture some of the economies of scale? So 10,000 square feet plus. And then what do growers, potential growers, need to consider about their market? Of course, you're not growing commodity crops. It's not corn and soybeans. These are more direct-to-consumer or direct-to-wholesalers. So how do they navigate that side of the industry? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, It's interesting for us being located here in Ames. If we were to try to provide 
uh, leafy greens 12 months out of the year to, let's say, Ames, Altoona, Ankeny, and Des Moines area. Uh, we could, from our estimates, get up to 35,000 or 40,000 square feet and have mm-hmm. that pretty well covered. But we're looking for uh, higher population and faster growing markets. So here in the Midwest, we'd say Chicago and the Twin Cities are ideal locations for having your crop production diversified. And when I say that, I mean maybe having 80% of your your outputs focused on leafy greens with the remaining 20% being a mixture of microgreens and herbs, such as, let's say, basil. But the microgreen market we're paying close attention to, it's starting to grow. Uh, Essentially, you need as many higher-end and nicer restaurants popping up in order to have a a good customer market for microgreens. What what is a microgreen for those of us that are kind of backwatered culturally? Yeah, so it's uh, it's essentially, let's say, uh, micro basil. It's going to be a smaller version of its uh, adult counterpart, uh, but the nutrients are usually more condensed and jam packed. So, as an example, uh, the like broccoli sprouts are way more nutritious than counterpart broccoli. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, there, there are hundreds of varieties of microgreens you can grow. Fascinating. Now, just as a quick follow-up, when growers are making these decisions, they're allocating production, what is the time span, what's the turn time on a typical crop, say a leafy green, a lettuce, an arugula, something like that, from seed to being eaten? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, too. So for us, that's where we feel like we have an advantage right now. Uh, if you are a vertical farmer utilizing hydroponic systems, you're looking to have 17 crop cycles a year if you're growing, let's say, lettuce varieties. So that's every 21 days you're harvesting and new seedlings are going into the system. Because we utilize software, specifically uh, supervised machine learning and machine vision, We've really been able to fine-tune when we disperse nutrients and the lighting the plants need. So we're seeing shorter uh, harvest cycles, uh, closer to 18 or 19 days. So with our systems at Commercial Launch, a new indoor grower should be able to have 20 crop cycles a year if they're growing leafy greens. So I want to do a a quick follow-up here. So you said that essentially your technology, it's like you're you're bringing a, like your very own horticulturalist with this system. So like, I don't have to have a background in horticulture to use this system, correct? Correct. Okay. So then is it like starting out like with seeds and then like I have to like plant them in like a certain type of medium and then the software takes over and like, you know, watches it for me or like, what do I have to do to like start the system? Yeah, that's, that's essentially it. So if you had a production facility, you would have a nursery where all the seeds are started and the seedlings at about a week to 10 days are going to be transplanted into the systems uh, if you think of, so we have vertical growing walls uh, with basically a plug that you drop the seedling into, and and then at harvest, so 21 days in, you're, you can take a hedge trimmer if you wanted to, or you could just pull the plugs with uh, the ready-to-be-consumed uh, lettuce. But the software itself maintains the grow from the time it's put into one of our growing walls 
to the time it's ready to be harvested. Okay. So from a labor standpoint, Clayton, if I've got, let's say, a 20,000-square-foot facility, and again, let's just use lettuce, what am I going to be required personnel-wise? So 20,000 square feet, we would hope that you could accomplish full production, assuming it's a lot of harvest cycles a year, so let's say lettuce, Mm -hmm. uh, essentially with one full-time production manager, and 20,000 square feet would be two full-time laborers and then two to four part-time laborers. Wow. Our systems right now can reduce labor requirements when we compare it to an average vertical farm by 30%. Interesting. Jeez. That's a lot. The next question I've got for you then, if we're reducing labor costs, and that's the most expensive part of vertical farming by 30%, what's the premium for a Nebulum system to get installed and up and running? How do growers capture those uh, those savings? Right, right. So right now we are in our prototyping stage, and we're in the middle of raising our seed round of investment. And that's where we need to move from having all of our systems retrofitted and built by hand into a material supplier and a manufacturing partner. And that's where we hope to launch 18 months from now. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. So right now it's very expensive. It's time-consuming. You guys are literally building it all yourselves. Everything by hand. That's right. And we we do have two model farm locations up and producing. One is located in Nevada, Iowa, with our pilot partner, uh, Longview Farms. They're a fourth-generation family farming operation who's looking to diversify and and step out of just the realm of row crops and into uh, some leafy green, mike green, and herb production here in Iowa. And then our second model farm location just recently launched. We have lettuce up and growing now, and we're on our second harvest cycle. And that's located here in the research park at Iowa State University, uh, just about a three-minute walk away from our office at the startup factory. Okay. And Clayton, you touched on how you're hoping to launch within 18 months here, but what is like the next step for Nebulum? Can you maybe talk about future goals or plans or even areas of expansion with this company? Yeah, yeah, we're pursuing a couple of R&D projects in nutraceuticals right now. Uh, that could, could turn into a, a larger avenue of interest for us down the road. So right now, we're really focused on our seed round of investment so we can expand out the team positions that we we need to further our mission. But the teams at 10, uh, we're looking to, by the end of this year, be potentially up to 14 or 15 team members. Fantastic. And Clayton, final question for you. If I am interested in one of these systems, I want to put it up, I've got a big warehouse I need to fill, what's the most profitable crop that I could plan on growing? Is it lettuce? Is it microgreens? What do you recommend? Yeah, uh, I, I would recommend cannabis. <laughs> That's oh, the most oh, profitable sure. crop right now. Uh, but outside of cannabis, you know, leafy greens like lettuce, it's good because the demand is there, the volume is there. If you have the demand, microgreens, because of their shorter uh, crop cycles, are the most profitable. Okay. Fascinating. And Clayton, I actually have one last question for you. The company named Nebulum, you know, where did this name come up or is there any specific meaning behind the name? Could you maybe shed some light on that a little bit? Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of creating uh, new words for companies, especially <laughs> because you can jump right on getting the domain the first day. 
But nebulum itself comes from combining two words. So nebula, so a a early age star that's in a gaseous state. And because we utilize high pressure aeroponics, we take the water and nutrients and pressurize that into a very fine mist or a, or a gaseous state, you could say. And then we combine that with the Latin word nulum, which is uh, means sustainable. So then you get nebulum. Okay, well, that makes a lot more sense. And Clayton, if we have listeners who want to learn more about your product, your system, where can they go for more information? Yeah, the, the best place would be nebulum.com, spelled N-E-B-U-L-L-A-M. They can also sign up for our newsletters or send us an email directly from the site. Awesome. Well, Clayton Mooney with Nebulum, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you both. Well, technology continues to change, and whether you're looking at vertical farming or conventional farming, reducing costs and automation seems to be the way to go. You're right, Mike. It, you know, it's very fascinating, you know, the discussion that we had today. So I'm, I'm excited about the future of egg. We've got some great technologies that are going to be coming up here shortly. Absolutely. And speaking of coming up, we're going to have good conversations tomorrow and then, of course, throughout all of next week. But, Delaney, if folks want to get caught up on things that have happened in the past on the podcast, where should they go? Absolutely, Mike. They can find our podcast on any podcast directory, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or they can simply find it on our website at agnewsdaily.com. If you want to keep up to date on the news we're following, you can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Ag News Daily. When we see news that we think is important for you guys to be seeing and watching and listening to, we share it right there on our social media sites. With that, guys, should we let the people go? Let's, Let's let, let them, them go. go.